from um, the uh, cosmologist Brian Swim, who has spent his life looking into the big picture, you know, the really big picture of the universe and other universes and galaxies and, and how we are in this configuration. So I read this thing some years ago and it to me is quite intriguing and it remains intriguing and I always think of it when, when I come to teach the creativity retreat. He says, each species has its own habitat, that place where the species can flower forth. If a species cannot find its proper habitat, its true powers of life cannot be evoked. A species denied its habitat perishes. We see it all around us. What is the true habitat of the human? Any guesses? If you know the answer, don't say. It seems like our culture imagines the true habitat of the human to be the shopping mall. (laughs) Or the internet. Wrong. His answer is, what is the true habitat of the human? Adventurous play. A human denied this habitat of adventure and surprise and play is denied the opportunity to become truly human. Isn't that amazing? But when I think about it, I think it makes sense. Because, you know, our ancestors got up, started walking around with these appendages, you know, and began to do things. They began to play with the world to see how, how they could make things and construct things and mold things and change things. Maybe it's gotten a little out of hand, but that was the spark. Let's see what we can make. Let's see what we can create. Let's see what it's like to invent things that weren't here before. And I think that of that as play. There's other ways of playing, of course, too. On this retreat, I imagine you're feeling some of that spirit of, of adventure and play. You're certainly being encouraged by these wonderful teachers, Barbara and Norman, to, uh, you know, kind of take another look at your habits and maybe go down a few new paths. So tonight I want to talk about some of the some of the things that we bring into the retreat, into our creative process, some of the ways that we uh, get in our own way, and some of the things that actually can help us. These three, and I'm going to talk about three things briefly, as I said, because I'm not talking tonight too much. Um, three things are expectations, questions, and intentions. These are what we bring to the party, so to speak, what we bring to our lives, our creative process. When I started this practice, yay, so many years ago, which I don't even want to count anymore, um, 
I had a lot of expectations. I, my main expectation was that something would happen to me called enlightenment. That was the big carrot at the end of the stick. I hadn't a clue what it would be, what it was like, but it sounded really interesting, really adventurous, actually. Very enticing, enlightenment. And of course, uh, <laughs> like all expectations, it didn't happen. Certainly not in the way that I could have uh, expected or hoped or imagined. I had thought that, that these, this enlightenment would occur somehow in the context of being given special teachings. We could call them secret teachings. I had the idea that one day some Zen master or Tibetan Lama or somebody in a robe with some kind of incense and shaking bells would say to me, you, come in the back room. I'm going to, <laughs> we're going to have the secret teachings and you, you know, that'll be it. And then I could be on my merry way. Well, of course that never happened. Not ever. And then I began to realize, and this was the actually true insight, that the secret teachings are always being given. Right here, right now, you are receiving the secret teachings. <laughs> but you may not see them. You may not feel their import. You may not recognize them. And that is our dilemma, that we keep the secret teachings. They are here, but they are self-secret. We keep them secret from ourselves. Isn't that a wonder that we could do that? They're right here, right now, so obvious, so present, so immediate, and yet somehow we don't. They're not received. A few years ago, there was this thing called a stereogram. Do you remember what a stereogram is? It's a I was introduced to it at a party. It's kind of like a, it can come in the form of a poster that somebody has on their wall. And when you look at this poster, it just seems like a lot of random colored dots, just t tons and tons of colored dots. And then at this party, somebody said, oh, well, don't you see? It's actually a scene of elephants and giraffes and, and plants and trees, and there's a lake. And, I'm looking at this thing and I'm seeing, no, I just see colored dots. And they said, oh, well, to see it, you have to kind of stand back at a certain distance and you have to kind of relax and breathe and you have to kind of soften your eyes in just the right kind of way and look and look. And then suddenly this picture appears and I did it and sure enough, there it was. Oh my God, there's elephants, giraffes, there's plants, there's a whip. Oh, I see it now. It's so obvious when I see it. It's so totally obvious when you see it. But until you see it, it's just a bunch of colored dots. And that is what happens in practice. One day we wake up and we see something we hadn't seen before. And it's like a miracle, even though it was here all the time. So what gets in the way often are 
a number of things, but expectations is one of the ones that gets in the way. They are operating in us, but hidden from our view. I looked up the meaning of expectation today in the dictionary, and expectation has several meanings. One is a confident belief or strong hope that a particular event will happen. Another definition, a standard of conduct or performance expected by or of somebody. Confident belief or strong hope. Well, in Buddhist practice, we have a kind of dim view of hope and belief because it trips us up. And expectations trip us up. They act in us as a kind of limitation. How many of you have been at times, have had your expectations disappointed? It's kind of a definition of life, isn't it? It's what makes us grow. So there's a little story the student goes to the teacher and says, what is the secret of life? And the teacher says, good judgment. The student thinks a moment and says, hmm, well, how do I, how do I get good judgment? This, the teacher says, experience. The student thinks for a moment and says, oh, well, how do I get experience? The teacher says, bad judgment. And this is called learning, and this is what we do. However, in that process of expecting and then having our, our expectations disappointed or uh, not finding what we had hoped, it is easy to feel a, a kind of judgment of ourselves, like it's, oh, it's, it must be something wrong with me that reality is not performing as I had expected, or this other person is not giving me what I wanted. Something's wrong with me. Or, it's your fault. It's clearly your fault that my expectations are not being met. (laughs) So we can go either way, can't we? Maybe it is your fault. Maybe there is some flaw that prevents you from being able to realize. But on the other hand, maybe it is not. Maybe it's not anyone's fault. Maybe it is just not not available in that time frame. Or maybe it's not in the current situation to have that expectation fulfilled. Or maybe it's just not being attuned to the reality of the way it is here and now. Our practice helps us to become more attuned to things as they are. We hear this over and over in the Buddhist world. Being in harmony with things as they are, being attuned to things as they are. What we're really attuning to is not something out here. It's attuning to ourselves attuning to where it is we trip ourselves up. 
seeing, where, where we have an expectation that is leading us in a way that will disappoint or frustrate. When we become more internally attuned, we are more likely to exercise what is called good judgment. So what expectations are you bringing to this situation? What expectations are you having in coming here? Already today, some of your expectations may have been disappointed. That's very common on retreat. So if that's happening, don't think along the lines of it's my fault, it's their fault, it's Spirit Rock's fault, it's Barbara's fault, it's certainly Norman's fault. That's the problem. <laughs> you know, just don't go there. But instead, look at the how expectation operates in us and how it trips us up. Now, what is useful in our practice? If that's not it, what is useful? So now I want to talk about questions. Questions are very, very useful. The role of the question in spiritual life is quite significant. It plays a central role because it is the question that gets us motivated, that, keep, that gets us to come here, that gets us moving on some kind of inner journey. The Buddha himself left home to pursue a question, to seek self-realization. And he found what he was looking for. We could say a spiritual question is one, and this is where it gets tricky, the, the questions that have the most benefit in our lives are not the questions that come with answers. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Questions that come with answers are like, you know, something you can read in a book, something you hear somebody say, and it's, it's sort of mildly uh, satisfying to the mind. Oh, I got my question answered. But is it transformative? Those kinds of answers don't generally transform us. So in, in spiritual life, there, there's, a, there's a tradition of asking questions which can't be answered by the mind alone. That means they cannot reference the past. They can't reference our personal history. They can't reference a theory or a belief system. They are questions that ask us to look in a whole different way. So different tradi traditions in the Buddhist world use a variety of different kinds of questions. And one, one question um, <clears throat> that is used in the Zen tradition is the Zen Koan. I was talking to Norman at, at dinner and um, mentioning that I had sat a few Zen retreats, very few. I was a big, I was quite a, a, a stunning Zen failure. 
my first Zen retreat was uh, this. Talking to Norman made me think of this. I thought to share share it with you. My first Zen retreat was with a, a Sazaki Roshi, who's now like a hundred years old. And when I when I sat with him, he was only seventy, and he kept threatening to die because we were also such bad students. He kept saying that he was going to die. You know, and I thought, oh God, this is really bad. I don't want to kill anybody. <laughs> anyway, um, I knew nothing about this retreat, really. A friend said, let's go. My, a friend of mine's going. It sounds really fun. Let's go. And, you know, <laughs> what did I know? We went. And um, so in this tradition, in the Rinzai tradition, you meet with the teacher four times a day. And it's to, for the purpose of answering your koan, your question. So the first meeting that I had with Suzaki Roshi was at about 3.30 in the morning, I think. And, um, and I, you have to, it's a, it's a very formal protocol. You have to kind of, you hear the bell, you rush in, like you're just so eager to share the answer, you know, you're just so full of inspiration, you can't wait to get in there. <laughs> Throw yourself at his feet and, and answer your koan. So I, not knowing anything, rushed in. <laughs> I rushed in there, and he looked at me and he said, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? My answer at 3.30 in the morning was, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I hadn't a clue what, he, what, what this was about. Oh my. <clears throat> so I don't mean to in any way imply that this tradition doesn't have great potency and wisdom. It's just that my, 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 I wasn't up to the task at that time in my life. <clears throat> so this questioning, these questions that can't be answered by the mind, that make no logical sense, they show us our path. And I don't know, you know, about, we don't teach that kind of practice here. Um, and I, in thinking about how this works, it seems to me that what's really important is us all finding the questions that have great meaning for us. What is your question? What is it that you want to know? One of my teachers says, the willingness to question everything is the key to awakening. The question shows you your path. You ask a question, and then your path begins to reveal itself. It is your question, and that's what's so beautiful about the question. It shows you where you need to go. And everybody's question may be somewhat different. But knowing what the question is, is a big step. So I would encourage you in this retreat, whether it's in terms of your life or your creative practice, to think, what is my question? It may, you may have a number of questions, but let that question live in you. Let it percolate inside. 
The next really helpful thing and really follows from the idea of the question is the role of intentions in our practice. What is our intention in coming here? If we think about expectations, we see that expectations kind of put us at the effect of other people, other situations, of, you know, events that we have no control over. Whereas when we, when we clarify our intention, we're putting ourselves in the driver's seat. We are saying, this is my intention. This is what I, I, based on my question, this is what I want to know, and this is what I want to do. This is how I want to explore. This is how I want to, uh, this is where I want to go. So make the intention the foreground. Clarifying your intentions is what sets your questions in motion. So expectations, questions, and intentions. Beginning to sense your relationship to these three forces. These three forces inside that will influence how we learn, what we learn, if we learn. So, having said that, I'd like to now take you into a process where you get, you'll get a chance to explore in your own experience some of this material. <clears throat> we don't, uh, well, this is, this is a process that will require you to partner up with one other person. That can be as easy as turning to a person close to you and sitting across from each other. So why don't we do that first? might want to spread out a little bit in the room so you're not listening to the people behind you or near you. Like you all might want to come forward, Carrie. You might want to come forward a little so you have a little more room. So this is... So I'm going to ask you to explore a question. And the question is, what is your present relationship to your creative process? What is your present relationship to your creative process? Now, this is going to be answered in the form of what we call a monologue. It's not uh, a way of answering to your partner that is like trying to explain something or trying to uh, tell the story of how you got here. It's more intuitive than that. It's a way of helping you go deeper into yourself in terms of exploring this question. What is my relationship to my creative process? I'd like you to particularly think of this in terms of expectations, your questions, and your intentions. See if they play in that question for you. See if they come up. Now, when you're doing a monologue, you're simply speaking out of your present experience. So it's okay to, to reference your body, to reference your feelings in the moment, 
to say, gee, when I ask myself that question, I feel kind of anxious, or maybe that's excitement, I'm not sure, but there's something going on energetically that I'm aware of right now. You can pause. You don't have to fill the airspace with words. You can pause and, and begin to just feel into this question in yourself. Your partner is there as the compassionate witness, only to hold the space, not to agree with you, not to answer you, not to say anything, actually. What's best is if your partner holds the space for you to explore. So you're, you're simply there as a, as a compassionate witness. So do you have any questions before we start? Mm-hmm.